Erwin Schiff was an insurance salesman who became a vocal activist against the U.S. federal income tax system. Schiff believed that the United States income tax legally applied only to corporations. He thought it applied only to corporate profits, not to personal income like most of us have. And so therefore, most Americans, he felt, should not pay income taxes or file income tax returns. And Schiff not only believed these things and put them into print, but he was willing to live by the courage of his convictions. He wrote a number of books detailing and defending his views about taxes. And like I said, he tried to live by the courage of his convictions. From 1974 and before, he filed income tax returns like every American is supposed to do who has income. But from, or I should say from 73 before he did that, from 1974 onward, he refused to disclose his income or file properly his income tax returns. He did send stuff in to the government, but it wasn't a properly filed tax return by any means. Because of this, he was convicted in 1985 of tax evasion, and he spent four years in federal prison because of it. When he was released, he continued his crusade against the federal tax system, and in 2005, he was convicted again of several counts of tax-related crimes, not just tax evasion, but all kinds of tax-related crimes. And on February 24th, 2006, his 78th birthday, he was sentenced to 12 years and seven months in prison and fined over $4 million by the federal government. While serving his sentence, Schiff became ill with cancer, and he spent his last days, the last days of his life, shackled to a hospital bed in a guarded room where he died on October 16th, 2015, at age 87. In so doing, Erwin Schiff lived out the modern proverb that was best voiced by Benjamin Franklin who said, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Erwin Schiff's life and death illustrated both of these truths. Taxes are a fact of life. And you can try to oppose them if you like, but one way or another, they will catch up with you. And the truth of the matter is, if you think about the federal government here in the United States where we live, and your relationship to the federal government, and my relationship to the federal government... The most likely place where where you and I and most Americans are likely to feel the authority of the federal government is in the tax system. That is, the federal government is around in our lives, it involves our lives in many ways, but where the authority of the government comes home to bear on most of us is with regard to taxes. Or to put it this way, The authority of human government is experienced by most people in the area of taxes. Where did Erwin Schiff get in trouble with the federal government? Taxes. Where do you and I have to report to the federal government every year? Or more than that in some cases, taxes. Where are you most likely to be jailed by the federal government if you break federal law? Tax law. The authority of human government comes to bear on people in its most 
oppressive, you might say, or its most direct way in the realm of taxation. And this is because, for many reasons, but one way to think about this is this. Everyone either pays taxes or receives benefits related to taxes. Now, there may be some exceptions to this, but for the most part, either you file a tax return and pay taxes, or if you don't make enough money where the federal tax system hits you, you might receive benefits provided by other taxpayers through the federal government. And so the tax system hits most of us in one way or another when it comes to the power and authority of the federal government. And this was true in Jesus' world as well. They lived in a different realm at a different time under a different system of government. And yet, the power of federal taxes, the power of a tax levied by the, by the government upon everyone living under that government was a reality during the times in which Jesus lived. And that's the focus of our passage for this morning, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. It's a passage about taxes and the propriety of taxes and whether or not people should pay their taxes or not. Now, to remember the context behind this, in a few, uh, a few days earlier than this incident happened, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem, and he'd arrived in Jerusalem like no one else had ever arrived in Jerusalem. He came riding a borrowed colt with the sounds of his disciples praising God and welcoming him as king into the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in some sense, was at least suggesting an alternative to the government systems that the people in his world lived under. And there were many people that welcomed this. Those who sang his praises and said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They loved the fact that Jesus was offering, perhaps, an alternative type of government to the one under which they live. But not everyone was cool with this at all. There were a lot of people who didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his teaching, and they didn't like the kingdom message that he was bringing. And Jesus, after he arrived in Jerusalem, proclaimed as king, he began to act kind of like a king, a lot like a king. He entered the temple and started throwing people out as if he had kingly authority, and he began to teach authoritatively in the temple. And so people who controlled the temple were very threatened by Jesus. They really wanted to do something to get rid of him. And so they were looking for a way in which to attack the credibility of Jesus at the very least, or, at the, or in the best case scenario, to get him in trouble with the government. And so they used the issue of taxes to try to bring into focus the potential conflict they saw between Jesus as king and the authority that he claimed and exercised and the authority of the government that already existed. And so in this passage, Jesus was asked about taxes. And he was asked about taxes to put him on the record. This is what people do to politicians, right? We want, to be on, we want you to be on the record about your position on tax increases or tax cuts or any number of issues. The question that Jesus has asked here is designed to put him on the record with regard to taxes as they existed, specifically about the legitimacy of human government to tax. That's the question that Jesus encounters 
in our passage for this morning. And so look with me, please, at Luke chapter 20, verse 20, where the scripture says, keeping a close watch on him, they, and these, these people who are referred to as they, are the opponents of Christ. They are the people who controlled the temple that Jesus had now seized control of. They were the ones who controlled the teaching authority of Judaism and were very threatened by Jesus and the message that he was pronouncing. And so, as I told you, they were looking for a way to get him in trouble. And verse 20 says they were keeping a close watch on him. They made it their priority to be with Jesus and see what he was doing and hear what he was saying. And verse 20 goes on and says they sent spies who, presented, who pretended to be sincere. Now, here's the point. Jesus knew the authorities who ran the temple, and he knew who the religious leaders were by their identity. They'd been bothering him for years. And so anything they brought to him, he would instantly know was somehow designed to entrap him or to trick him or to get him in trouble. And so what these guys tried to do is they said, let's find some people who are sympathetic to us but are unknown to Jesus, and let's make them appear as if they are interested in becoming disciples of Jesus and listen to his teaching, and then let's let them ask a legitimate sounding question to put Jesus on the record. That's what's going on in verse 20 when it says they found spies who pretended to be sincere. These people are trying to get Jesus to say something that'll get him in trouble, but they're acting like they're really interested in him as potential disciples. In verse, uh, or verse 20 goes on to say this, they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Now you see that last part, the power and authority of the governor. This governor is Pontius Pilate, under whose authority he will, in a few days from, from the time of this incident, be convicted and punished and ultimately crucified. And so these religious, these Jewish opponents of Jesus are trying to get him in trouble with the Roman government, the Roman government that had conquered the known world at that time, and under which included Israel, where Jesus lived, and under whose government they ultimately all lived. And so Jesus has brought this question as a setup. This question that he has asked is a setup engineered by his opponents who are feverishly working to get him in trouble. They use these undercover agents who look like potential disciples, and their mission was to lead Jesus to say something that would create legal trouble for him with the Romans. Now, all of this is in the context that I've already suggested to you about Jesus presenting himself as king. Remember at the triumphal entry back in chapter 19, the message that Jesus' followers brought was this, that he was the king. In uh, Luke 19, verses 35 through 38, we read more than once in the past few weeks these words. They brought it to Jesus, that is the colt. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And in these words that I've underlined on the screen for you, in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, his followers have paraphrased some of the language of Psalm 118, where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but in context, it is the king who is coming. And so they've paraphrased the language, but they've done so correctly. They've done so 
properly interpreting what that psalm is about. And they're applying it now to Jesus. And so Jesus, since he came with the heralding as a king and started acting like a king, he's got some authority, apparently. And that authority, these opponents of his want to bring into contact and into conflict with the Roman authority so that hopefully the Romans would take care of him. If Jesus looked like he was leading an insurrection, if Jesus looked like he was maybe trying, maybe not to lead a direct military insurrection, but to try to foment a quiet insubordination to the Roman government, then his opponents could sick the Roman government on him and they'd be rid of him. All right, that's the plan that's going on in this passage. And so they bring Jesus a question, and it's a question about taxes, because again, that's where the authority of any human government comes to press and bear on most people. And so we read in verse 21, the spies question him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question that they brought to Jesus. And they attempted to frame this question in an either-or way, in a way that trapped him into saying something that would cause him problems either way. Now, verse 21 tells us that before they brought this question, they buttered him up, okay? Everything they say in in, uh, verse 21 is true about Jesus. And it's the kind of thing that a true disciple of Jesus, or at least someone who was attracted to becoming a disciple of Jesus, would think and would say, verse 21 again says, so the spies question him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And so they're saying, we've listened to your teaching for the past few days. Remember, these are prospective disciples. And they're saying, what you're saying lines up with everything we already believe about the law of God. You're a teacher of truth. We know this. And they go further and say this, and that, what you, and that uh, you do not show partiality. And so he's saying, you don't like, emphasize the parts of the law that are favorable to people, and you don't um, use it in a way to uh, you know, curry favor with people who are already in power. No, you, you teach the law to everyone, and you're not afraid to step on toes. And that's the last part of their statement in verse uh, 21. And that you uh, teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And so they say all these things about Jesus that are complimentary to him as a teacher. And all of that is designed, again, to lower his defenses and to make him think that what he's about to say is going to be received well. It's going to be a safe place for him to make his views truly known. But just so that there's no way out, they frame the question in a way that should get him in trouble no matter what he says. It's a simple yes and no question. But either yes or no is going to offend somebody and cause him some kind of problem. And so they spring the question upon him. They give him a difficult yes or no question in verse 22. And that question is, is it right? That is, is it lawful according to God's law? That's the question. If Jesus teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth, as they said, their question is about the application of that truth. Is it correct? Is it lawful? Is it pleasing in the sight of God, verse 22, for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. Are we being obedient Jewish people when we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, we need to understand that there are different types of taxes in the realm and the times in which Jesus lived. Back in chapter 19, we met Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. 
But the type of tax that he collected was really more on moving goods across um, city lines. It was really a tax on um, consumption probably more than anything. It was a different type of tax than what they're asking Jesus about here. The tax that they're asking Jesus about here was what's called the poll tax. And it was an unusual tax. It was unlike any other tax that they paid in a couple of ways. One, it was paid directly to Caesar, meaning it enriched Caesar directly. It wasn't paid to fund anything else like the Roman army or any of that other stuff. It went straight into Caesar's pockets or whatever they used to carry their coins around in, metaphorically speaking. All right. So whenever, when this tax was paid, think about every person under the Roman Empire, every man, every head of household in their culture, paying this to one person every year. Imagine how enriching that would be. Okay? And so it was controversial for that reason because it was paid directly to Caesar and went directly into his uh, wealth. It was also controversial because it had to be paid with a Roman coin, a particular Roman coin. All right? And that was controversial for reasons that we'll come to in a moment. It was controversial among Jewish people, I mean. This, um, this tax was paid once every year, and it was paid using a denarius, which we'll talk about in a minute. This denarius was... On average, what an average working man would make in one day. And so we're not talking about a huge amount of money for most people. But this tax was applied to everyone, whether you were working or not, whether you had a good income or not, you had to come up with the money to pay this. And so you can see how for some people who were poorer, it was a much more difficult tax to take on and to pay. While for others, it might have been annoying, but still, uh, or it might have been annoying, but something that they could handle. And to kind of put this maybe in a little bit more of a modern context, we live, or this church, I should say, exists in York Township, all right, in the county of Washtenaw, in the state of Michigan, in the country of the United States of America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the median income for York Township is $98,077. I'm surprised, honestly, that it's that high, but we'll leave that alone, all right? And so if my math is correct, and it rarely is, <laughs> that would mean an average daily wage for someone who makes this amount of money would be $268.70. All right? That's a lot of money. I mean, 270, 200, almost $70 you know, that can buy you something pretty substantial. For most people, but see, this amount would be applied to everyone. It wouldn't be applied to whether you actually made this income or not. For people who made less than this, they would still have to pay the same amount. And so you can see how people who were very poor, what a great burden this was to them, to have to pay this tax year after year and know that it went directly to the wealthiest person in the entire realm and just further increased his wealth. And so you can see why this was a controversial tax in many ways. Now, like Jewish people, uh, like us, I should say, Jewish people didn't like paying any taxes, but the one, this one was particularly unpopular for all of the reasons that I've gone into. And in addition to that, because it was paid to Caesar, it reminded them on an annual basis that they were not free, that their nation, that their government, and anything that they did was really under the direct supervision of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire could be quite a brutal empire. 
It reminded them that they lived in fear and in subjugation and subjection to this emperor known as Caesar. And so that meant he could increase the tax anytime he wanted. He could oppress people in any way that he wanted. And so this was a reminder to them of their lack of freedom, the freedom that God had promised them in the Old Testament if they followed his word. They didn't have that. And so it was difficult. It was a tough tax for all of these reasons. And so you can see why this was a great test case to get Jesus in trouble. Here he comes as a king, offering a kingdom, in a sense. They already are under a king. How does Jesus' authority mesh, or how would it clash with the authority of Caesar and the tax that he wanted to impose upon the people? And by asking Jesus a yes or no question, do we pay this tax or not, Jesus is in quite a quandary. If he says yes, pay the taxes, he would lose the support of his followers who were poor and didn't, you know, had a hard time affording this tax, many of them, or people who just didn't like the fact that they were paying the taxes and thought they should be free under God. So he would lose support from some of his followers if he said, yes, pay the tax. If he said, no, don't pay the tax, and that's what his opponents wanted, that's what they were hoping for. But if he said, no, and pay the tax, they would go directly to Pontius Pilate and say, here's a guy whose followers proclaimed him as a king when he's coming into town, and now he's preaching that you shouldn't pay taxes, you shouldn't pay the poll tax to Caesar. You might want to go arrest him and take him out. Okay, so you can see how Jesus, by the way that this entire thing is framed and the way that the question is asked, is all a trap. And he's in a very difficult spot. Well, Jesus' answer is amazing. The answer that he gives is clear, but it's also clever. It answers the question unequivocally. But it does so in such a way that it offends neither of the parties that should have been offended by one of the answers. Let's look at what he said. In verse 23, it says, He saw through their duplicity. And so despite the fact that they're trying hard to fool Jesus, Jesus is not fooled. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, verse 24, show me a denarius. This was the coin that must be used to pay the tax. And by asking to see one, Jesus does a couple of things here. We'll see one of the things he does in a second. But another thing that is not readily available or readily apparent on the surface of matters is the fact that these questioners were actually able to come up with one of them. Okay, that's telling. They were carrying these coins around with them in whatever they had. If they didn't have pockets, they had some kind of change purse or whatever. They were able to come up with the coin that must be used in the payment of the taxes. That's telling. And so Jesus asks to see the coin, which looked like this. On that coin is a profile, a side view of Caesar, and these words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus. And this is another reason why people didn't like the text, because the coin itself said that Caesar is divine, and of course, this would be offensive to monotheistic Jewish people. And so Jesus responds to their question by saying, well, show me one of those coins. Let me, let's see what it looks like. And so somebody pulls one out, hands it to Jesus, and Jesus starts asking them questions about it. Those questions are contained in verse 24. Show me a denarius, he says, whose image and inscription are on it. He's saying, 
Whose face appears on this coin? Whose name is on it? They answer very clearly in verse 24, Caesar's. And by doing this, Jesus has turned the tables on them. He's shown that they are already carrying the coin around with them. And that the coin itself shows their subjugation and their submission to the Roman government itself. And so these people, by using Caesar's money, which they were using for their own daily commercial transactions, by using Caesar's money, they were playing Caesar's game. That's what Jesus is suggesting here and what he'll say in a cryptic way, but clear way in a moment. He's saying, you're walking around with Caesar's coins on you. You didn't have any trouble coming up with one when I asked for it. That means you've already consented to the rules of the Roman Empire. If you were a, a, a tax nonconformist, you wouldn't, there would be no way you would have one of these coins on you. You would find some alternative currency to work in. And so the fact that you have this on you means you're playing by Caesar's rules. And that means you've got to do what Caesar says. If you're playing the game of Monopoly, right, and you land on chance that says, like, pay the income tax, you can't all of a sudden object to the rules. You submitted to the rules when you decided to play the game, when you accepted the cash from the banker. And this is, in essence, what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you've got the coin on you. It's got Caesar's name and his face all over it. Aren't you already putting yourself under the rules of his game? If you carry around Caesar's money in your pocket, do you really have any reason to not give some of it back to him when he demands it? That's the implication behind all that Jesus does. And he makes this implication clear in his answer, verse 25. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, I said earlier that Jesus' response was clear but clever. It's clear because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, pay the tax. When he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, he is unequivocally saying, yes, you must pay this tax. And so his answer is clear, but it's also clever because Jesus doesn't come right out and answer the question. Yes, of course you have to pay the tax and then somehow try to defend his answer. No, Jesus does it in such a way that it's really hard to argue with the answer that he gives. By using this kind of visual aid to point out the fact that they were carrying the coins around with them, and the fact that the coin has Caesar's image and his name all over it, how could people argue that they were not under Caesar's system if they're carrying his coin and it's got his name on it? And so Jesus' answer is very clever here because it gives a clear answer, but not in a way that gets him into trouble, either with the Romans or with his followers. And we see that in verse 26. It says they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. They were astonished by the answer. They became silent. See, they've got no response to this. Jesus successfully avoided their trap, and he did it in a very clear way. But the, the, the clear truth in this passage that Jesus is teaching, the one that is the, um, the clear result that any of us should take away from this passage is that human governments do have the power to tax. Jesus' answer affirms that human governments have the authority to collect taxes. 
And we need to think about this in terms of the kingdom that Jesus was offering, because it is true that Jesus came as a king. And the question and the implication behind the question is, if you're a king, then why would you agree with the Romans on this? Why would you participate with them? Why wouldn't you say, no, don't pay that tax and get your arms together so that when they come to arrest me, we can fight off the Romans and begin establishing my kingdom here on earth? Why didn't Jesus do this stuff if he was the king and if he has the authority? How can he, as the authority that he says he is, say, you must submit to the authority of the Roman government? And so I think it's important for us to think about this question and what it suggests about the kingdom of God and the age in which we live. The truth of the matter is this, the kingdom of Christ will eventually replace the kingdoms of this world. There is going to come a point when Caesar's authority is no longer legitimate and his taxes are no longer legitimate. Because his kingdom and every other kingdom on this earth will be replaced by the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ as Lord. And the Bible teaches this over and over again. It prophesied this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Long before Jesus came, it said, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. And ultimately, the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, the one that he preached in his gospel message, was this kingdom. And it will eventually replace Rome. But this kingdom is still future to us. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the promise of Christ, that someday he will reign as Messiah and he will replace all the kingdoms of this world. What's misplaced and what's missing and why Jesus answered the way that he did and affirmed the authority of human governments to tax is that Jesus was not going to impose his kingdom upon the world yet at this time. Instead, as we have seen over and over again, Israel rejected Jesus as king, and he called judgment upon them. We've seen this over and over again just in the past few Sundays since we've been looking at the triumphal entry and the final week of Jesus' life. Israel rejected him as king. And so he did not establish his kingdom at that time, and that was for this reason. Before that happens, before the kingdom of Jesus replaces the kingdoms of this world, the Bible says that God will gather in citizens to his kingdom by faith. This is what is happening in our times. Israel rejected Jesus as king, and they are now not every person of Jewish descent, but Israel as a nation, as the people of God, they are in rebellion to God. They are under his judgment, just as Jesus prophesied. And instead, the gospel message is now going out to every other nation on earth. So that people who hear the message and believe it by faith will be counted as citizens of the kingdom, even though the kingdom is not here yet. And we can see this in multiple places, but here's one. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, the scripture says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. This is just another way of talking about coming to God by faith, becoming a believer, being a follower of Christ. Peter says, make sure you are part of the family of God. 
You've confirmed your calling and election by faith. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is God doing in this period between Jesus's first coming and his ascent to heaven and the return of Christ, which is promised in scripture? The answer is God is pulling people out of the kingdoms of this world and saying, you are now a citizen of my kingdom. And that happens when a person hears the gospel message that Jesus died for sinners and they believe in the gospel message. And Jesus becomes Lord of everything, Lord of their lives. This is what's happening as we send out missionaries to preach the gospel message. This is what's happening when I call people to repent of their sins and come to Christ by faith. I am saying this is the message. Christ is coming and he's establishing a kingdom and his kingdom will wipe out all the other kingdoms and everyone who's not a citizen of that kingdom will be punished eternally by God. So believe the message and you will be included in the kingdom of God when it comes. And so that's why... Jesus says, ultimately, my kingdom really isn't in conflict with Caesar's yet. And so, until the kingdom of God comes then, while we wait for the kingdom of Jesus to come, we must obey the rules and submit to the authority of human governments. That's what Christ is saying in verse 25 when he says, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's not our job as Christians to be subversive and try to overturn human governments. Human government, in fact, was created by God. Part of our faith, as we call others to join the kingdom of God by faith, is to show that we are in submission to God by being submissive to the human governments that we have, unless they violate Scripture clearly. Being a good Christian is not in any way in conflict with being a good citizen. And let me show you a couple of passages of Scripture that illustrate this. In a few days, Jesus is going to be betrayed, and he is going to stand before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is going to question him about whether or not he is a king. And one of the things Jesus will say to him is this, John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. If Jesus was establishing a kingdom on earth at this time, we would be tax protesters. Okay, We would take up arms against human governments, but that's not what God has called us to do. Jesus will impose his kingdom supernaturally when the time comes. Until then, we are to live as good Christians, as good citizens of whatever kingdom we find ourselves in. We see this in 1 Peter. There's a long thread of argument here. I'm just going to give you parts of it, but in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, we're going, to talk about, we're going to talk about how we're now part of a new kingdom. And then in verses 13 through 17, he's going to talk about how that means we should obey the government now. Here it is. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, and then 13 through 17 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Okay, all of those are ways of saying you belong to a new kingdom. It's God's kingdom. But then he says this, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is the gospel message. This is what we're doing until Jesus comes. Verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, So that's all of what we are in Christ as believers. Now in verse 13, he's going to say, what are the implications of this? How should we live as people who belong to the kingdom of Christ. Verse 13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor 
as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Then he says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't say, well, I belong to another kingdom. I'm not going to pay U.S. taxes. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, or the scripture is saying here, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So while we wait for the kingdom of Jesus to come, we must live obediently to the rules and the authority of the kingdoms, the human kingdoms in which we live, the human governments under which we live. Jesus affirmed that human governments have authority to collect taxes. So what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? It means this. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, pay your taxes and your tithes. Look with me at verse 25 again. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But Jesus really doesn't care about Caesar or him getting his money. He cares about people living for his kingdom with their money. And so he adds this, and to God, what is God's? And everything Jesus says about money needs to be kept in context with everything else he has said about about money and kingdom living. We looked at one of these passages last Sunday where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff you need, including the money to pay your taxes, will be added to you as well. The point that Jesus is trying to subtly make here is that since we are followers of his and we belong to another kingdom, we should stop being so concerned about money and material things. The reason why we object to paying taxes is we love having money and buying material things. It's the same reason why people don't like to give to God's work. It's because we see our gifts, as God, of, our gifts to God's work. It's taking away from the money we have to spend on ourselves. Jesus is saying, if you belong to God's kingdom and the rewards for his kingdom are eternal, then you shouldn't care so much about paying your taxes or your tithes. I know tithes are controversial in the Christian church, so I'll come to that in a second. But just before you check it out and react in a knee-jerk fashion, just listen for a moment. All right, let's talk for a second about paying your, tithe, your taxes. Pay your taxes because you are submissive to God. I guess I've already emphasized this point, but let me just beat it to death and give you another verse. Romans 13, 1 and verses 6 through 7 says, Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And that's why Jesus brings God into this discussion. Everything really belongs to God, including the human authorities, including Caesar. Even though he didn't know God and didn't acknowledge God, he had his authority under the will of God. And so, Romans 13, Paul says this, There is no authority that exists except what God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then in verse 6 he says, This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So part of living as good Christians because we follow Christ, is living up to the rules and laws and standards of the human governments above us, which in part means paying your taxes. Now, because of Erwin Schiff and others like him, 
and the fear that we might have of being accountable to the human government if we don't pay our taxes, I doubt this is really a big problem for most of us. Whether we like paying taxes or not, we don't like going to jail or paying heavy interest and penalties. So I think it's probable that you already pay your taxes. When it comes to funding the kingdom of God and his work, however, we don't have any draconian means for enforcing the payment of God's people to God's work. We have never and we would never discipline someone from our church for not paying their tithes, even though tithing is part of the membership covenant that all of us as members have agreed to. We, we wouldn't enforce that. We, we don't go around looking to see who has stopped paying or who's paying less or whatever. And so we don't look at the collection of tithing and the, the collection of giving to God's work as um, being equivalent to the way the uh, kingdoms of this world collect their money. But yet, I think you should understand that God's method for funding his work still involves God's people giving to his work. And so that's why I say the second part of this is pay your tithes because you want to fund God's work. Now, I said already that this is controversial and there are many Christians who want to stand. If they stand for nothing, they stand for this. Tithing is not a New Testament concept, all right? And I agree. There is no command in the New Testament that says you must tithe and we are not under the Old Testament law. But I want you to understand that the principles by which God's work is funded have not changed from the Old Testament. God's Word says over and over again that the people of God who hear the Word of God are responsible to pay for God's work to keep going forward. Everything we have as a church, everything we have as a church in terms of finances, comes from the faithful giving of God's people. And as I said, tithing is part of our membership covenant. So even though it may not there may not be a New Testament command. When you joined the church, if you're a member, you said, I'm going to give to this church. And by the way, there are many Christian disciplines that are not directly commanded in the New Testament that we all think are good. There's no command in the New Testament that says you must go to church every Sunday. But yet, I think that's important for spiritual growth. There's no command in the New Testament that says you must read God's word every day. And yet, I think that's important for spiritual growth. And I think giving to God's work is important too. One, Jesus says... Your money is going to show where your heart is. So when we are stingy about giving to God's work, it shows that we are materialistic in our concentration and in our orientation. So when Jesus says in verse 25, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's saying don't shortchange God in the area of giving either. God is the authority and His work is calling out people into his kingdom, and we need funds to make that happen. Again, in the Old Testament, this is how the work of God was funded. In in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, the scripture says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. There's the principle that has not changed from the Old Testament. I could show you many New Testament passages that say the people of God fund the work of God through giving. So that there may be food in my house. That is that the the people of God, the servants of God have resources by which they can work. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. God's work happens when God's servants do what he commanded, but we need funds to make that happen. As a church, we try to be good stewards of all of the financial resources that we have. But the truth is that our ministry is limited by what people give. We could do more as a church if we had more money coming in. And because our income goes up and down like crazy, it doesn't come in steady every month like a paycheck, some months we have to pull back from things that we would like to do because we simply don't have the funds to do it. So the question for this message is really more about taxes. It's about where's your heart? Is your heart on keeping as much money and material things for yourself as you can? Or is it on knowing that God owns all things? And so if God owns all things, then, and he's the one who established human uh, government in the, to the beginning, then I shouldn't be so resentful about paying taxes. And if God owns all things... And his kingdom is going to come, and my eternal rewards are based on how I use my time and my money in this earth. Then I shouldn't be so stingy about giving to his work. So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your money says a lot about the state of your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, pay your taxes and pay your tithes. 